I wanted to mention this morning also, for that Christmas Eve service, there are rides available. So if you need a ride to and from that service, you can call the church this week and we will line that up for you. Uh, to our message this morning, I want to begin with the smell of roasted turkey. Yes, that's a great tradition. How about the sight of a noble fur, beautifully adorned with golden, twinkling lights? Maybe that gush of juice as you bite down into that fruitcake pineapple, been soaking in who knows what for who knows how long. And then there's the scream of the child who's just opened the gift of socks. Well, we have many Christmas traditions, those traditions that seem to follow us through every December, through every year. Well, this morning I want to set before you two more traditions, two traditions that I believe will bless you not only during the Christmas season, but throughout the rest of the year. The first is to simply choose good gifts, and the second is to eat good food. Well, these traditions, as the sermon will show, I prefer to call them habits, are going to have little to do with your activities this week. This week, you will choose good gifts and you will eat good food, but instead, there's a spiritual bend to this. These are meant to capture two important teachings from our Lord, and they come from Matthew chapter 16. It's where we are in our text this morning. We're working our way through the gospel of Matthew, and as we approach Matthew 16, Jesus is interacting again with his disciples. And in the text this morning, he warns them. He warns them of an unbelieving heart, and he warns them of an undiscerning mind. Again, these warnings will serve you and I year-round. They'll go further than just this holiday season. Why does the Lord warn us? Well, he warns us because you and I are prone to doubt. We're we're prone to disbelief. These are things that are within the realm of possible as we live our Christian life through the year. You and I are susceptible to false teaching. No doubt we encounter false teachers and we encounter false teachings year-round. So this morning, Jesus will use the imagery of the baker And he'll use the imagery of the meteorologist, and he's going to give us a warning, too, in particular. And he gives us these warnings not out of anger, but he gives them out of love. And he gives us these warnings not, not to withhold things from us, but to protect us. The warnings that Jesus gives are a grace he provides his people. These warnings are meant to keep us on the path of righteousness. And they're gifts for you and I to receive this day, but to use year-round. So in this spirit of seasonal advice, let's look at the first few verses of Matthew 16. Choose good gifts. Choose good gifts. Verses 1 through 4. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. 
And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And of course, again, as we speak of good gifts this morning, we are speaking in spiritual terms. We're speaking of knowing a good gift when we see a good gift. This may not come naturally for us. In the realm of shopping, it's difficult to always know what to buy someone or to know what someone would want or to find that perfect gift. But when it comes to a spiritual application, this is what we're after this morning, we should see clearly that Jesus is God that he's the Messiah, the Savior, sent into the world by God the Father. That should be a gift that we should see clearly. And again, the response to that should be an easy choice to make. We should respond to that in faith, receiving Jesus, receiving his gift. Well, in our passage this morning, that should have been the response of these parties, these two visiting parties who encountered Jesus. We read, however, that it was not. In our verse 1 of our text, we find both the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to test him. They are out to test Jesus. And all of this comes as a grim contrast to what we encountered last week. Remember, last week in our text, Jesus traveled Gentile country. Jesus is out among pagans. These are non-Jewish people. He traveled to the ancient land of Canaan. You can read through the Old Testament to see the trouble that Canaan was to the people of God. Jesus traveled to the Decapolis. This is a a ten-city region mostly comprised of Gentiles. And when he went there, people sought him out. People were interested in Jesus. We even saw one woman profess him as Lord, calling him the son of David. Now, he's back among his countrymen, among his fellow Jews, and with open arms and glowing smiles, they test him. You have the Pharisees, as the first group in our text, the Pharisees love the law. We can appreciate that about them. God's law is a law meant to be loved. Psalm 119 describes God's law. It's lovely. It's meant to be loved. It's meant to bless. But they also loved tradition. They invented a number of traditions to surround and pad that law. And over time, The Pharisees confused tradition with Scripture. We might say that they put Scripture and tradition on par with one another. They're on the same level, treating tradition as though it's God's Word. Back in chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus called them hypocrites. They were more concerned with outward appearances than with the heart. The second group were the Sadducees. These were a different religious group. They were mostly wealthy aristocrats of the time. They tended to be more liberal in their theology. Of particular note is their disbelief in the resurrection of of anyone. 
In Acts chapter 4, they would go to arrest Peter and John. And they would arrest Peter and John for preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Some see the Sadducees as the progressive Christians of our day today. It's important to note that the Pharisees and Sadducees, that they, they did not get along. And that's what makes this passage all the more interesting. It's that they are allied against Jesus in our passage. This is not an indicator of their love for one another, but it's an indicator of their disdain for Jesus. Each group sees Jesus as their enemy, and that unites them. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they put him to the test. We've seen this Greek word before, this word for test, all the way back in Matthew chapter 4. In the wilderness, Jesus was, quote, tempted by the devil. Same word. This is not friendly. This is not sincere on the parts of these religious authorities. Their hope would be to produce from Jesus some kind of discrediting that Jesus would be able or unable to perform a sign, and they could write him off. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Apparently, the miracles he's already performed were not sufficient. And we've seen many already in 15 chapters in Matthew. We've seen miraculous healings. We've seen demonic exorcisms. We've met a leper, a centurion, a paralytic, a blind man. We've seen Jesus stop a storm, multiply food, and walk on water. But these guys, they want a sign from heaven. These ordinary, normal, run-of-the-mill signs, that doesn't cut it for Pharisees and Sadducees. They want something Old Testament here. Did God not part the sea for Moses? Did God not cause rain on behalf of Elijah? Did he not stop the sun for Joshua? They want to see these things or things like them. And again, we know that they're not sincere. We know that in verse 1, they're setting out to test Jesus. And Jesus' response to them, well, it gives us an idea of his perspective toward them. What does he say? You are excellent meteorologists. Now, he doesn't say that in our text. I'm giving you some commentary. You're excellent meteorologists. You're very good at identifying the weather. Weather typically moves from from west to east. When we look up in the sky, we see different colors, and that's coming from rays of sunlight. The rays of sunlight pass through the atmosphere, and they bounce off particles and water vapor. And at sunrise, the sun is really low in the sky, and when we see red, we're seeing a high water content, probably meaning it's going to rain. Pharisees understood all that, maybe not in those terms, but they understood weather. Verses 2 and 3 would be just a way of saying all of that science in more English. In fact, the Pharisees could look at God's creation, and they could draw good conclusions. They could discern the appearance of the sky. But they could not discern the signs of the times, namely that Jesus 
is God's Messiah. And keep in mind that, that they are Bible experts. They know their Bibles. They could quote Old Testament chapter and verse. They know more about their Bibles than the Seahawks know about punting. If they would have happened to be in the synagogue in the day that Jesus unrolled the scroll and there he was in the Sabbath and he read from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. To that, the Pharisees would have responded, amen. The spirit is upon me, meaning Isaiah. He anointed me to preach to the gospel or preach the gospel to the poor. They'd say, Amen. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Amen. Recovery of sight to the blind. Amen. To set those who are oppressed free. Amen. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Amen. Jesus closed the book. He sat down and he announced, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in me. And they would have said, No. That is their response. Not you, Jesus. Despite everything that we're seeing, despite the fact that you are indeed fulfilling these very words from Isaiah, applying them to yourself, they would reject him. They could not believe because they would not believe. They gave Jesus hearts of pride and hearts of disbelief. They cannot discern the signs of the times. Well, Jesus, in not so many words, gives them some advice. Basically, he's telling them to go back to the temple to get their students, to gather their disciples around, those students that they would teach and instruct in Jewish law, and then they could start teaching and start teaching loud enough, and as they do, they should tell them all about the weather. Because that's what they know. They understand weather and no more. To quote Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, Jesus says, They are blind guides of the blind. And he calls them an evil and adulterous generation, seeking after a sign. And Jesus says something curious here. A sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And they're not going to get what they demand. I'm going to go back a little bit in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. I want to read through verse 40 because we've encountered this same language before and we've seen it in longer form. Jesus explains what he means when he speaks of this sign of Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, we see that some of the scribes and Pharisees say to Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Does that sound familiar? But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If you want to see a sign, look in the tomb. It's empty. And just as Jonah came forth after three days, so too did Jesus come forth after three days. And there are also good arguments that challenge this this whole way of thinking. That assert that nothing changes even if Jesus does these things. 
that just one more sign, oh, if I had one more sign, I would change my mind. Those who've chosen proud, unbelieving hearts will not believe. I'll take you to Luke chapter 16 to illustrate this one way. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable. That's a parable of a rich man in Hades. And this rich man is begging Abraham, warn my brothers that they would not come to this place of torment. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham replies, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that's another way of saying the scriptures, by the way, Moses and the prophets would be one way to summarize the Old Testament. They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. During his earthly ministry, Jesus proved this. In John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And one chapter later, rather than believe, after seeing this amazing sign, what are they doing? These religious leaders are plotting the death of Lazarus. It's a pride or or a pride manifested in envy. John MacArthur's written a commentary on Matthew, and and he he includes a quote from a renowned atheist from a bygone era named Voltaire. And listen to what Voltaire says, quote, even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. That's a heart of unbelief that will not believe. So the question for you and I this morning concerns these signs. Do we read them? Do we understand? I mean, you and I understand the weather. I've got a great weather app on my phone. I can learn the 10-day forecast. I've got wind speeds, direction, pollen counts, air quality, humidity, pressure, visibility. All of that is good. I can understand that. But what about Christ? Because God has given us Christ, God in the flesh. And we can read of him in the, in the word. If, if we're not going to be convinced of God in the flesh, if we're not going to be convinced of him through his word, nothing is going to convince us. The reality is what we end up giving to God, if we reject all that, would just, just be a heart of pride and a heart of disbelief and, and a hardened heart. But what are we after this morning? We're saying choose good gifts. Choose good gifts. Choose this good gift that God has given you to receive it. The Bible says that this God has knit you together in your mother's womb. The Bible says that this God knows you. He knows when you sit down and when you rise up. The Bible says that this God is intimately acquainted with all of your ways. This is the God who loves you and he sent his son, Jesus, in the flesh to die for your sins and to rise again from the dead. Choose that good gift. Choose that salvation. I want to look next at verses 5 through 12, and I said it this way, quite simply, eat good food. I believe by the time we're done with these verses, you'll understand what I'm saying. Verse 5, the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, 
He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? And how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000? And how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Our scene is changing here. We have a change in scene. Jesus and the disciples set sail. And Matthew wants us to see that that they are moving away. They're getting away from the Pharisees and Sadducees. And in this account, he then dials in. He focuses in on, on one item. One item in particular. It's that one element that someone forgot to bring, bread. And he's going to note this because he wants to set the table for the conversation that's about to happen, and and we just read that. Jesus warns, watch out and beware of the leaven and the Pharisees. Again, that's a two-part command. It's an imperative. Watch out. That concerns the eyes. He's saying, be on the lookout. Beware concerns the mind. Have an interest. Why are they to watch out? What are they to beware Leaven. Leaven was a hunk of yesterday's dough. And it would be used to make today's dough rise. So you made some dough, you just set aside a small piece, you put that in the new dough. And what leaven will do in this new dough is it's going to work its way through the entire mass to bring about change. Now we're going to get to a point on teaching in a minute, but listen to how leaven correlates to teaching, to what we're receiving as we listen to doctrine. Leaven begins its work instantly. Leaven works from the inside. Leaven works almost invisibly. But yet, leaven produces a very real effect. It has an impact. In verse 12, we learned exactly what Jesus meant when he said this. Leaven means teaching. Jesus warns the disciples against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we see the disciples don't quite understand this. They're not getting it. They are thinking in terms of bread. And verse 7 seems to be a fairly poor attempt at whispering to keep things from Jesus. Philip, you had one job to do. Andrew, I thought it was your turn. He's saying this because we did not bring any bread. Well, don't try to hide things from Jesus. Okay, you're on a small boat to begin with, and he's omniscient. And Jesus, in verse 8, is aware of this. Jesus is aware of this. And he's not calling here for a boycott of bakeries run by Pharisees either. 
What he's saying in verses 7, excuse me, verses 8, 9, and 10, he says, if I want bread, I'll make it. And then he cited those two occasions. A grand total of 7,000 men witnessed this miraculous power of Jesus. He does just fine setting the table. His point for his disciples, for you, and for me, is to watch out and beware of false teaching. Bad doctrine, bad teaching. Doctrine is just another word for teaching. J.C. Ryle has said that the assaults of persecution from without have never done half so much harm to the church as the rise of false doctrines from within. The Bible has a lot to say about this. Scripturally, doctrines, teachings can be described as deceitful in Ephesians 5, destructive in 2 Peter 2, strange in 1 Timothy 1, perverse in Acts chapter 20, worldly and empty in 1 Timothy 6, and arrogant and vain in 2 Peter 2. And we can assume that the authors of these letters, we can assume that Jesus and Paul and Luke and Peter, we can assume that because they write these things, because they know these things, it's because they experienced it. They've witnessed what bad doctrine does to people. They've seen what happens when false teaching takes hold of a heart unguarded by truth. You and I would be naive to think that this was just a Bible times problem, that there is no false doctrine around today, or that you and I are not susceptible to false teaching. That would be an inaccurate conclusion. Indeed, it's 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 that states the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There may even be more bad doctrine out there than there is good doctrine. So how do you and I avoid digesting it? How do we watch out and beware of this leaven? Well, I want to give you five tests, five tests for sound doctrine. These come from an author named Tim Challies. I'd recommend you look him up sometime. He's an excellent writer. Test number one is the test of origin. The test of origin. Sound doctrine originates with God. False doctrine originates with someone else. The test of origin. Consider the the community at Galatia. I imagine that the Galatian churches had numerous options. Numerous options when it came to teaching and to doctrine and to, to, to knowledge. But Paul was very clear when he went to them. He was very clear when he wrote to them that the gospel he gave them originated with God. This is not something contrived. This is not something that he he invented on his own. He says, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine originates with God. Which begs the question, how do we know if a teaching is from God? It's the second test, test number two, the test of authority. The test of authority. Teaching from God is in the Bible. Only the Bible is inspired and inerrant 
and infallible and authoritative. Only the Bible. No other book, no other man. We have in our lives great traditions. We have church history. We have church councils. All of those things can be helpful, but they are never on par with Scripture. Scripture alone has authority. And if someone appears on your doorstep and says to you, God told me to tell you, you checked the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, God said it to everybody. And if it's not in the Bible, don't believe them. The third test is a test of consistency. Sound doctrine is consistent with the whole of Scripture. False doctrine is inconsistent with some parts of Scripture. This is a great one because we know that God never contradicts himself. Never. God is fully consistent at all times. For example, as he spoke through his apostles in the New Testament, as he's speaking forth these New Testament books, these letters, at no time are any of them contradicting the Old Testament prophets as God spoke through them. And this is why we can utilize something that we call Scripture interpreting Scripture. There's places in the Bible where something is less clear, but over here it's more clear. We can always look at what is more clear to understand what is less clear in the Bible. And we can do this because God is without contradiction, because God is fully consistent all the time. This is a great test for sound teaching. Is it consistent with all of the Bible? Fourthly, there's the test of spiritual growth. The test of spiritual growth. Chalice continues, sound teaching leads to spiritual health. False teaching leads to spiritual weakness. Paul wrote letters to to Timothy. Timothy was a younger man. He was a pastor and and a church planter. And in 1 Timothy, he told him what to teach. He told him to teach sound doctrine. And I want you to listen to the effect that sound doctrine had upon Timothy's life. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Sound doctrine, it grows Christians. Healthy teaching causes you and I to grow spiritually. You hear the word nourished in this passage. Uh, It's a word that we know from from our health class or from dieting. What we take into our bodies, it either nourishes them, it's either healthy, or it does not nourish them, it it is unhealthy. And you know that over time, these patterns are going to make a difference in our lives, physically. See, the reality is this morning that there are pulpits all over this continent who are putting out cotton candy and deep-fried Oreos, coffee mocha milkshakes. Yeah, are those things delicious? Absolutely. Are we going to grow healthy and strong from them? By no means. No, in fact, that regular diet of eating those things would actually make us weak and sick. Well, the same is true of our spiritual health. 
false teaching is going to cause you and I to become ignorant. It's going to cause us to be immature in our spiritual growth. See, we want to ask, is this teaching that we're hearing, is it causing me to grow spiritually? And test number five is the test of godly living. The test of godly living. Sound teaching is going to contribute to godly living. Unsound teaching, false teaching, is going to lead to ungodly living. And I want you to hear the correlation between what we believe and what we do, between believing and doing. This is a familiar passage that we, that we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Here Paul identifies a form of teaching. It's called the Scriptures. Now listen to their impact. So that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. Teaching done accurately, teaching done that is handling the Word of God appropriately, it causes Christians to grow. And that's why our doing, it's always going to flow from our believing. That's why we need a healthy intake, a healthy diet of God's Word so we have a spiritual health. And Jesus is calling upon us to, to eat well. He's going to call upon us this morning to eat good food, and in our message today, we're also reminded that, that Jesus is this amazing gift of God, not, not only now at the holidays, but, but throughout the year. The passage this morning it was really two warnings, both issued by Jesus. He warned us first not to, to, to give way to an unbelieving heart when we're confronted with the, the truth of who he is. And he warned us a second time not to, to give ourselves to false teaching, but instead be well-fed on sound doctrine. What's interesting about the latter part of this passage is that the the whole scene takes place in a boat. The source of the problem that he's warning about is in the boat. Uh, We we, we tend to think it's on the shore behind them, that the Sadducees and disciples, maybe they're, they're standing on the banks. But what Jesus sees is, is a heart issue. He speaks to the heart of the disciples because it's at this heart level that the battle is either going to be won or lost. We're going to continue to encounter false teachers and false teachings. Daily, we're taking in things. We have to, the, the word of the year is misinformation or disinformation. We're constantly trying to siphon through what is true and what is false. It's so much more important when it comes to biblical doctrine and to scriptural faith. Error is going to be around us. There's always going to be attractive opportunities, either to to reinvent the faith in a way that that feels right and is is, is good good for us, or or to accept the faith as it is, as as it's been handed down, and to take that faith for what it's worth and to believe upon it, even when it's hard. But the good news is that we, we get last say. We can either accept the teaching or we can deny the teaching. And see, the solution to the warning that Jesus gives was also in the boat. And there was the Lord Jesus himself. The solution was not far from them. A right understanding of Christ, a right reception of his teaching, all of these are going to be the great safeguard. These are good traditions to be making at Christmas, and they're good habits to take with you year-round. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, thank you for the amazing teaching of our Lord. No one can teach like Jesus. Thank you for the warnings that he gives because we know he loves us. And it's his desire that we stay on this path. I may pray for us today, Father, that we would be believing, that we would see Jesus for who he is and be, be ready to believe, be quick to believe. And I pray, too, for protection from false teaching and false teachers. The world around us seems filled with, with lostness and confusion when it comes to your word. Oh, Father, may our hearts never be given to it. May you give us minds of discernment, understanding your word, reading the signs of the times, and knowing true teaching and sound doctrine. Oh, Father, we love you, and we pray for your blessing upon our week leading up to Christmas. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.